You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Galatians 3, starting in verse 19, says this. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are our sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored labored over you in vain. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate your reading today. Um, Do you ever read the Bible and uh, you go... Goodness, I have no idea what that means. Um, that, was a, that was a lot. Sometimes you open the Word of God and you read a passage like this and the temptation is to go like, man, I was just, I was looking for something kind of encouraging or happy to start my day. I don't know what this means, so I'm going to skip over to the Proverbs or something. Um, but a passage like this is a lot like mining for gold, okay? Um, it takes some work. It takes some effort to really understand what's going on here. But you find treasure. And I don't want you to miss the treasure. We want to be a church that values um, digging into the word of God, that values theological rigor. And so we're going to have to use our brains and our hearts a little bit walking through um, the passage. Um, 
But I, I want to try to help you get kind of an overview of what's happening right here. Paul is talking about the purpose of the law. That's what he's talking about from a broad perspective right here. What is the law for? In fact, the purpose of the law is the title of today's message. Um, you have a law, okay? Um, whether it's spoken or unspoken, whether it's the Ten Commandments from the Word of God or it is, it's sort of a thing that you've kind of pieced together um, from your life experience or maybe it's 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, whatever, um, whatever law it is, you have one whether you've um, spoken it or not. And Paul is really acknowledging that right here. He's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles. Did you notice he, he talked about the Old Testament, but then he also used these interesting phrases in uh, chapter four about the elementary principles in the world. Um, right there, it's likely he's talking about the basic tenets of pagan philosophy, which the Gentiles would have embraced. So he's talking to wide swath, lots of different kinds of people, and he's saying, you have a law that you are tempted um, to ask too much of. Like it's, it's going to tell you how to live. That's, that's true. Um, but it can't redeem you. Um, it can only condemn you. It can't give you power for obedience or for life. Um, and so friends, we are not unlike these people. We have a law. You have a law. And here's, here's the bad news, okay? If you were to go back to um, Exodus chapter 20 and read the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't get very far without um, the big red X buzzer um, getting hit, right? You shall have no other gods before me. How are we doing? Um, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, that, I, I want to explain what that means, but another sermon, okay, another time. Um, uh, don't bear false witness. Anybody, right? Okay, we don't get very far into the list when we start to realize um, that we're pretty bad at keeping the law. And that is at least part of the purpose of the law. It reveals to us that we are not holy the way that God is holy. It's meant to highlight a need and here's the beauty of the gospel. Where your need is highlighted, Christ comes as a rescuing and redeeming force. He steps into the world. He lives in perfect accordance with the written and righteous law of God. And then he takes that perfect identity, that perfect standing, and by sheer audacity, he looks at you and he says, here you go. It's yours. Full credit for what I have done. And so we, we have to ask the question, if that's true of us, if we are in Christ, what do we do with the law? Do we just stop reading the Old Testament? It's not that, okay? It's not that. What do we do with the law? I want to give you kind of the main point of, uh, of this text right here and explain a little bit. The law is seasonal in its purpose, okay? But the gospel is eternal, what I don't mean is that the law is useless. Um, you've got a verse in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Not an iota or a dot will pass away from this law until the end of the age. In other words, this law tells us something valuable. But Jesus gave us the other half of this statement there. The gospel is eternal. He has fulfilled the law. 
So what we're going to see as we walk through this text, we're going to see what the law does, okay? And then we're going to see how the gospel offers us a superior promise. That's what we're going to see through this text. So just two points today. Um, Point number one, the law restrains. That's the first purpose of the law, restrains. And then point number two, the law babysits, okay? The law restrains and the law babysits. So look back at the text with me in chapter three, starting in verse 19. Why then the law? He hits it right on the nose. That's the question all of us are asking. It was added because of transgressions. Now let's stop there for just a moment right here. What is a transgression? Um, A transgression is an overstep. It's moving past a boundary line that you're not supposed to move past, right? Um, You're going to watch the Super Bowl this afternoon, and you're going to see a little, if you're not a sports person at all, you're going to see a tiny, beautiful little yellow flag fly up in the air at some point, and they're going to call out false start. What that means, um, I very quickly get out of my coverage in explaining football things, but I think I got this one, okay? A false start is when you move past the line of scrimmage before you're supposed to move past it. That's a transgression, right? You went too far. You didn't, you didn't go at the right time. You went too soon. And Paul is saying right here that the reason the law was added is because there was an overstepping of a boundary. So God, in his perfect character, he saw humanity offending his character by their behavior, by their attitudes, by their actions, and he put the law in place to tell them very clearly what he expects of them. The law was put in place because of transgression. Now that means a couple of things for us when we look at the law. What does it mean that it was added because of transgressions? Well, it means a couple of things. One, it means that the law is sort of like a seatbelt, okay? Um, Most of the time, you don't really need a seatbelt, believe it or not, right? If you don't get in an accident, the seatbelt doesn't really do anything except make you a little uncomfortable. But the one time you need it, Ooh, you better be glad you had it on, right? Or you're going to rock it out of the windshield. Wear your seatbelt. That's just good advice. It's not part of the sermon. It's just free advice this morning. So the law is meant to restrain evil in a real sense. It's meant to keep us from flying out of the windshield, right? Because given enough time and opportunity, we will dream up ways to violate God's law and literally drive ourselves off of both the real or proverbial cliff. The law, when it tells us do this and don't do that, it's like a seatbelt. It's restraining us. It's giving us something to run into to keep us safe. And in that sense, the law restrains evil in the world. Like, goodness gracious, would we not be better off in a general sense if the entire world looked at the Ten Commandments and said, yeah, we'll follow that? It would restrain evil. Now, would it deal with their hearts? No, it wouldn't. But it would restrain evil. It's like a seatbelt. But the law, because of transgression, is also like a mirror. You know what a mirror does? A mirror gives you awareness. It shows you reality. 
I remember one time, I think it was J.C. Penney or Macy's or something, it was a couple of years ago, I was walking through the, the perfume section, right, you kind of have to hold your breath through, not because it smells bad, but because it smells so much, you know what I'm, I'm talking about, and they have these mirrors set up at the different booths, and I was walking past and I caught my reflection in a mirror and it was one of those like concave mirrors that makes your head gigantic. And it, it caught my eye and I walked back and I stepped back, I was like, was that me? And I looked back and I got close and you can see every pore and every line and every, every blemish and every microscopic imperfection. And I was like, do I really look like this? This is shocking and frightening. Friends, that's what the law does. It reveals to us, it makes us aware of who we actually are, goodness gracious. If we're honest with God and with ourselves, when we see his holy commands, very quickly you realize, oh my gosh, I don't measure up. I can't do this. I can't keep the law, even when I want to. I, I, it makes us aware of the transgression. But then kind of the last part of what it means that the, the law was added because of transgression is that it's not just a seatbelt and it's not just a mirror, it's also a test, right? Um, when you were in school, you had to take exams, um, not just to make you feel bad about yourself, believe it or not. You can forgive your fourth grade teacher, okay? The reason we're given exams is to assess our knowledge. Like, do we know? Do we know the content the way that we're supposed to know it? And the law is meant to be a sort of test that tells us we have a deficiency in knowledge. And maybe it's not a deficiency in knowledge of the head. Maybe it's a deficiency in knowledge of the hearts. We don't obey this. The law was added because of transgressions. It's meant to, to restrain us and make us aware and assess reality for us. But look at the next part of the phrase there in verse 19. It was added because of, of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, don't get hung up on the angels thing right here. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want you to pay attention to the word until. This word matters a whole bunch. It means that we were living under the law, under the weight of it, under the transgression of it, until a certain time. Here's what that means. Living under the law has an expiration date. Now last week, if you, if you were here, you remember I said, we relate to the law, but we don't rely on the law. That's the same thing I'm talking about here, okay? If you, if you didn't hear that, go back and listen um, to the podcast from last week. But there is an expiration date on living under the law. And it tells us what the expiration date is. When the offspring came, who is this referring to? To Jesus, right? He is the offspring, the one who could grab a hold of this promise of redemption for us. He is the one who is able to pull us out from underneath the power of the law. 
Now, I don't want you to miss what Paul actually wants us to do when he starts talking about this. This is where we can get lost in the weeds in a passage like this. But what Paul wants us to do right here is zoom out. He wants us to go. We've been, we've been on the ground with the gospel. And now he wants us to zoom out to 30,000 feet. And he wants us to think about the whole story of redemption here for just a moment. I, uh, I had my friend Michael make this helpful chart to help us understand what Paul is talking about right here. See, he makes, he makes these references to offspring and a promise and this and that. See, in the next, um, the next section of verses, actually, I want us to read a, a, a couple more verses. Verse 20, it says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, you see a couple important words here telling us about this big story of redemption. Words like promise. Words like law, words like Christ. These are summaries of the redemptive story of God. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I am going to make you a, na a nation of lots and lots of people. Right? He was an old man with no kids, and he said, your offspring are going to be more vast than the stars of the sky or the sand on the beach, and they are going to be a blessing to the nations. And this beautiful thing happens. Um, in, in ancient world, when a covenant was made, an animal was split in two, like a cow or a goat or something, and then the two parties making that covenant would walk between the halves of the animal together. And it was this powerful symbolic gesture that was meant to say, if we break the terms of the covenant, the same thing should happen to us. Now here's the beautiful thing about the promise made in Genesis. Abraham doesn't pass between the animals. Only an angel of the Lord passes between the animals. What's he saying right here? This is an unconditional promise. This is not based on your faithfulness. This is based on my faithfulness. It was a promise of God for man. And then when, when we go forward into the story and we get to the, the law handed down because of transgressions, the world is coming apart and God brings his law into the world. In Exodus 20, that's the first time we meet the Ten Commandments. And the law is a conditional promise. It's a promise that says, if you obey, then you will find blessing, right? The commandment that says, honor your father and your mother. We sing this with my son all the time. You better honor your father and your mother. That, that it's, a, it's a conditional promise. That it may go well with you and you live long in the land. Honor your father and mother so that you can take hold of these promises. But guess what that means in the inverse? If you don't honor the promises, you don't receive the blessings of that covenant. 
In fact, you receive the curses of that covenant, which is distance from God, which is a casting out. This is a, uh, this is a promise, or I'm sorry, this is a covenant of God and man together. But then here's what happens. In the age of Christ, Luke 22 is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. When he holds up the glass of wine and the bread and he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. Instead of an animal being broken to make this covenant, I'm going to be broken. And whoever passes through me will find life. You see, this is a a beautiful promise from God because it's based not on your work, but it's based on the work of Christ completely. And by virtue of Christ, the text tells us here in multiple places that you are given the Holy Spirit. God begins to do his work through you. See, this is a covenant that God brings into the world, not really with you, but more through you. We get to be a conduit, sort of, of God's work in the world. And, and Paul, right here, he wants us to zoom back and say, look at the whole story right here. In verse 21, he asks an important question. Does the age of the law contradict the age of the promise? No, no, no. The law was never meant to give life. It was never meant to give righteousness. It was meant to restrain. You see, here's what the law is doing. The law is setting up the gospel. Setting it up. This is like a layup, right? It's like, or an alley-oop, excuse me. My sports metaphors, not the tightest. The law is setting up the gospel dunk right here, okay? Another image that might help you see what the law is doing here is to think back when you were a kid. How many public schoolers out there? It's okay. You're not going to get shamed for me. I'm a public schooler too. You probably remember a moment where you were waiting on your mom or your guardian after school to come pick you up, right? And a teacher maybe came in and said to you, hey, your mom is going to be here soon. You'll wait with a teacher. And then some time goes by and then the teacher arrives. The rise and fall of emotions in those moments in the heart of a little person are unbelievable. I remember that, that, hey, your mom is going to be here soon. My heart rises, right? I'm almost out of here. Jailbreak, it's coming. But then, hey, you're going to wait with a teacher, You're going to wait in her room. The heart begins to sink again. Okay, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And then mom shows up, right? Having to wait with a teacher in the middle of the promise and mom showing up is not a betrayal of the promise that she's coming. No, no, no. It just means that there's time. There's a gap here. And you need to wait with somebody who can take care of you and keep you for a season. That's exactly what the law did. You see, here's, here's the thing. When we start to look at the law, honestly, condemnation begins to creep up. It just does. If you're honest with yourself, you will start to see how, how good you are at not keeping God's commands. 
And right here, in this gospel setup, this is where Jesus shines. Right in that place. I want you to think of it in your own heart right now. Where's the place that you look at your life and you go, I can't get it together. I'm trying, fighting, or maybe I'm not even fighting. I can't get it together. Right in that place. This is where the gospel shines. This is where the blood of Christ speaks a better word over his people than the law could ever speak over you. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of London in the 1800s, he he tells a story one time of, of getting a letter from someone, a critic who said, you are the worst sinner in all of England. And that's a pretty staunch criticism, is it not? But what Charles Spurgeon said in reply was, oh, good sir, you don't know the half of it. I'm not actually the worst sinner in England. I'm actually the worst sinner in the world. It's far worse than you think it is. And guess what? I am no less loved by the Lord Jesus Christ for being the worst sinner in the world. (laughs) This is what the gospel does in us, right? Could he not have heard condemnation in that moment and quit? Just given up? He's like, he's right. What do I have to say? But instead, he said, oh, it's actually way worse than you think it is. But I am far more beloved than you can imagine. Do you believe that? Friend, which are you tempted to neglect? The reality that the law tells you? And you just, you just plug your ears and la, 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 you don't want to hear it? Or do you neglect the grace of the gospel? Because in my experience, we're usually prone to one or the other in different seasons of life. Like some of us, we just don't want to ignore the commands. Like, hey, Jesus, Jesus is my bro, not my king and my Lord. And when we do that, We bring reproach on his name and we miss out on the intimacy. But some of you are in the room this morning and you're ignoring grace. You can't receive it. You go, I'm I'm a mess, I'm a mess. I keep screwing this up and I keep doing this wrong and I keep making this mistake and I'm being impatient with my children and I keep cheating on my exams and I keep on and on and on and on and on and on the list goes and you you can't even begin to lift your gaze to the graciousness of the Lord Jesus and friends if I can call you back in the promise of Christ this morning let the law show you who you are glance without fear and then as that happens this is equally as important Don't hear one half of what I'm saying. You gotta hear this whole thing. Let the law show you who you are, glance without fear, and then receive the forgiveness of Christ in every place of failure. Ray Orland Sr. has this beautiful quotation. He says, half-hearted Christianity is the worst existence of all because you know enough about your sin to be devastated but you don't know enough about your Savior to be happy in Him. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It's a living death. And we are not a living dead. We are a resurrection people. Amen? Receive the forgiveness. That place, that thing that you're going, I cannot forgive myself. 
How dare you think that you hold the keys to your forgiveness? The Lord wants to forgive it. Give it to him. Lay it down at his feet. He knows. His cross is public declaration that he knows you are a sinner. And it's also the declaration that he was glad to do it. Receive that. The law restrains us. Law restrains us. That's not all it does. It also babysits. Here's what I mean. Look on at verse 23 in our text. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, context matters here. Paul is talking to both Jews and um, Greeks or Roman citizens, so, um, but he's talking primarily to that second half of the audience, those of Roman society. And that word guardian right there in the original language is the word pedagogue. And someone from Roman society would have recognized that word immediately. In Roman society, um, a pedagogue was a person who, um, when a boy would turn like four or five, the parents, the father primarily, would hand the son over to the tutelage of a pedagogue. He was sort of like a tutor, but what I want you to think more is like a really harsh babysitter. That's essentially what a pedagogue did. They made sure that this boy didn't kill himself, and he made sure that he minded his peas and cues, that he followed the rules. And so Paul is using that image from culture to say, here's what the law was. The law was our pedagogue. It was our harsh babysitter that kept us in line for a season. You have different expectations for a babysitter than a parent, do you not? So like sometimes we, uh, every once in a while, we will leave our children with a babysitter. Some of you have been that babysitter and we'll go out on a date, right? Now, I have expectations for a babysitter, let's be fair. When I get home, I want the house to not be burned down. That's just, that's like cookies on the lowest shelf, okay? I just want the house to be standing. And here's the second one, but I'd argue the most important. I want the children to be alive, okay? That's very, very important for a trustworthy babysitter. But here's the thing, those are my expectations, right? I don't expect that babysitter to love or cherish my child the way that I do. Like I want them to be nice to them, I want them to enjoy them, I want them to have fun with them, but I don't expect them to be changing a diaper explosion and go, man, it is the privilege of my life to serve this person. You just have different expectations for a babysitter and for a parent. See, the law, like a babysitter, if followed, will keep you alive. Like if you were to just follow the Ten Commandments, devoid of any actual relationship with God, I would almost guarantee you would have a better life 
instead of a worse life. But that's not the idea with the law. What's interesting, going on further in verse 25, is it says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or a pedagogue. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the young son was given to the pedagogue, and then the years would go by, and at age 14, that was Roman culture's initiation into manhood. And here's what would happen. The father would come and take his son back from the pedagogue. He would, in effect, redeem the son. That's what it was called. And he would take the toga of a child that had distinct markings and fringes on it, and he would take that toga away from his young son, and he would give him the toga of a man, the toga of redemption. Notice what Paul is saying right here, right? The law was our pedagogue before, but now that faith is, it has come, we have been redeemed. We're no longer under the guardian. You are now a redeemed son. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. He's saying, you exchange the robes of being under the law for the robes of being under Christ. This is a beautiful image. Friend, you were under the care of the law until Christ came. And now, don't miss this, you are a son. You are a daughter. Christ himself is your robe of redemption. The text says to put on Christ. You are covered, clothed, carried in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on in verse 28, after, if that's not enough, that you're in Christ, covered in him, sealed with him. In verse 28, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This verse is often used to say, we need to forget all differences between people. And I don't think that's what's actually being said right here. Again, context matters. At the time in antiquity, Jewish men, it was custom for them to offer three prayers of thankfulness throughout a day. And here's what the prayer sounded like. In the morning, it said, God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. <laughs> I'm serious. Isn't that messed up? At noontime, God, thank you that I'm not a slave. And then in the evening, God, thank you that I'm not a woman. And what Paul is saying in this verse right here, you have put on the robes of Christ. These are not your primary identifiers any longer. Slave or free, man or woman, Gentile or Jew. You are not, you are not primarily from a Jewish background or a Gentile background. You are part of the family of Christ. You are not primarily a man or a woman. You are part of the family of God. He's saying, stop identifying with these old babysitter identities. Friends, it is not primarily your ethnicity, your gender, or your social class that are meant to identify you. It's not that those things go away when you become a Christian, but listen, they are not the thing that's meant to anchor you in your life. 
Those are offendable identities. You are Christ's. That's who you are. Some of you in the room this morning, it keeps replaying in your head, I'm not blank enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not beautiful enough. Guess what? You are Christ's. That's not who you are. Some of you are going, I'm too this. I'm too much for people. I'm too loud. I'm too this, that, or the other. No, no, no. You are Christ's. You are his beloved. Some of you are looking and you're going, I don't have this. I don't have money. I don't have status. I don't have importance. I don't have this. Friends, you have heaven's king. He is yours and you are his. That's what it means when you put on Christ. Some of you are saying, I have too much of this. I have too much acne. I have too much this. I have too much that. You are the beloved of God. And in the back of your mind right now, you may be saying, you say that. Prove it. Based on what? Good for you. Those are well wishes. But it doesn't seem to affect my day-to-day experience of life. Look on in chapter 4. At verse 4 and 5. You better buckle up. This is a good one. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the proof that all those things I just said are true about you and Christ. You are adopted. You're adopted. Now I knew some about adoption before the last season of my life, but one of the most impactful, genuinely the most impactful moments of my life was uh, a year ago, February, a year ago this month, I'm sitting in the courtroom next to my friends, Keith and Claudia, as they adopted baby Alexander. courtroom's kind of an intimidating place if you've never been in a courtroom. I, didn't, I hadn't done anything wrong, and I was still like, are they going to, did I, though? <laughs> I sat down along with a few other friends there. It was quiet. It was very formal. The judge was sitting there. I remember, I'll never forget this, Keith took the stand And Alexander was sitting back with his mom. And the judge looked at Keith. And he started asking him questions. He said, do you you love this child with my whole heart? And would you give this child up if things got hard? And Keith looked at the judge and he said, you couldn't take him if you tried. Do you promise to care for this child as if he was your own flesh and blood? Absolutely. I would go hungry before this boy goes hungry. At the end of that ceremony, a gavel cracked. Everybody cheered. And in that moment, Alexander became Alexander Sparrow. With the full rights, the full privileges, the full benefits of being a son. Some of you struggling to believe that God would adopt you this morning? 
or at least you're struggling to believe that he doesn't regret it. He got this far in and he's going, I didn't realize I was getting such a mess when I signed up for this. But guess what the father says? You couldn't take her if, she, if you tried. I'm providing for his needs. He is mine. You are adopted. And look what adoption does in verse six and seven. It says, and because you are sons, fully adopted sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, friend, your heart and my heart does not gravitate toward intimacy with God. It doesn't gravitate toward sonship or daughtership. It gravitates toward, no, I wanna, I wanna do it, right? I wanna make my own way, I wanna chart my own course, I wanna do my own thing. That's what we gravitate toward, and it is the opposite of Christ's heart. Christ's heart has always said, Father, I love you, I need you, I rely on you, I'm with you, I'm connected to you. And get this, here's what these verses are saying of you. In the adopting work of God, the spirit of Christ, his heart, his desires, his will, his hopes, the Holy Spirit of God, coming to dwell inside of you. Guess what happens? Your stillborn spiritual lungs fill with air and cry out for the first time, Father. The very cry of Christ becomes your cry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Friend, you were not just given the family name, you were given the family heart. That's good news. When you can't muster up the strength to obey, when you're condemned, you know what you do? Ask for the family heart. Remember who he's made you to be. When you're sad in your failures, ask for the family heart to run to the Father. When you don't want to obey, ask for the family heart. When the law seems trivial, you're going, why this? What's the big deal? What's the problem? Ask for the family heart. When you wonder if you're saved at all, ask for the family heart. The spirit of the son lives in you crying out, Abba, Father, why? Because you are no longer a slave, you are a son. Believe this. You see, the recipe for a good photograph is, is a background and a foreground, right? The background is sometimes dark. But because the background is dark, it gives contrast to what's in the foreground, what's in front. You see, the background, um, band, you can go ahead and come up, Eric. The background of reality is the law. It's dark, you've trespassed it, it's black, it's 
gruesome, it's ugly. And guess what happens when the law and your sin are in the background? The gospel shines bright in the foreground. So, where do we go from here? Number one, I think we gotta stop dragging around feeling sorry for ourselves. You're a trophy of God's grace if you're in Christ. I'm not saying that to make you feel like you're awesome. I'm trying to make you feel loved. If you believe that, it will change your Christianity. I want to believe that. Let's believe it together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I know that there's wrestle in this room to receive belovedness. There's wrestle in this room to even acknowledge that God's law is good or holy or true at all. And I'm praying that you would, by your power, break through the defenses in our hearts and draw us in. God, make our church a people of adoption who believe it, who believe it so wholeheartedly that we go out into the city and say, you can be adopted, you can be welcomed into the family of God, you can be forgiven, you can be freed, you can be covered by the blood of Jesus. Do your good work in this room right now, Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Friends, we don't just want to hear the word. We want to be doers of the word. I want to encourage you to respond today. And we here at New City typically respond in three key ways. Number one, we reflect. Where through his word was God speaking to you? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to repent of? Who do you need to forgive? What do you need to lay down? I'm gonna be in the back of the room during this worship set. If you need prayer, if you're stuck, you feel like you can't get out from under the law, you can't get under the gospel, I wanna pray for you, I wanna encourage you. Pastor Keith will be in the back as well. Second, we remember the Lord's death by taking the Lord's Supper. Right here in the front, there are two stations and then there are two in the back of the room with a little cup of juice and a little wafer and that's meant to represent the body and blood of Jesus broken for you. If you are a Christian, I invite you to take the Lord's Supper today. This is meant to be a remembrance, a remembrance that the new and better covenant, the new and better promise came at a high cost that came for you. And then number three, finally, we rehearse. We rehearse, a day is coming when you are not gonna be tempted to rely on the law. When Jesus is gonna say, obey, and you're gonna say, how high? With joy, from a heart of love and obedience. And so when we sing in a moment, I want you to sing like that future's coming and that future's true. I love you. I love being your pastor. Respond when you're ready.